We're still dealing with the uh, question we're unpacking step by step. The question of um, the judgment of our lives and our deeds. So we looked last week, we looked at a clip where this particular ministry was preaching that we will not be judged uh, according to what we did, but we will be judged according to what we were called to do. We, we called to do. Okay. So there's various doctrines out there. An accepted Christian doctrine is that um, there will be a judgment where rewards will be given or lost according to our deeds on earth. And we started looking at the question, and we unpacked it, so we dealt with the scripture that speaks about a fire that will test our works. I want to make sure that everybody understands now that um, the testing fire pertains only, exclusively, completely limited to that which pertains to our interaction with the body. So regarding the building of the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, uh, whatever we contribute with our interaction. So there can be positive and negative contributions made. The positive and negative contributions, that is what will be tested by fire, simply because what we add to the building of the house has to either remain or cannot remain, because obviously if it's not something that is according to the finished work and the perfect will of the Father, then it cannot remain. So if somebody comes along and decides to um, uh, improve on the decor in the holy, uh, we won't go into the holy of holies, okay, but let's go into extreme. the holy. <laughs> So that's just unrealistic. Where the showbread is, the table with the showbread, the altar of incense, somebody comes along and says, well, we have a lot of money, so let's hang some um, nice pieces of artwork, let's get some Van Goghs, some Rembrandts, and just, you know, it's all boring, and these old curtains, all the, way to Picasso, the old that's... curtains has to go, it's time for something new, yeah. so... This just gathers dust, like... So we hang 10 Rembrandts on the wall, poof, gone, burned up. <laughs> so it's a very, very, very significant um, correction to our mindsets. We understand this. This is all our interactions with the body. Um, it is how we contribute and when we do not contribute, when we speak and when we do not speak. So there's times when we are supposed to encourage and we didn't. Supposed to respond and we didn't. And there's other times when we did respond out of uh, motivation of the heart that shouldn't have been or that was not in sanctification and that will be burned. Now, let's, just before we carry on, we're going to now look at the dynamic of the rewards, the crowns. So another significant part of this whole doctrine or uh, way of thinking is that there is five crowns identified by the church, by Christianity. Uh, I wouldn't say everybody believes this doctrine, but everybody believes this doctrine to some degree. In some form. In some form, because most people vaguely understand that or believe that we'll be given crowns. And so... 
um, this this idea of crowns and rewards. And so there's a formulated doctrine, uh, especially uh, again and um, part of our inheritance from the Catholic um, abomination. We have um, <clears throat> what they call the five crowns of salvation. The five crowns of salvation, they call it. Beautiful. Um, a lot of uh, denominations have this idea to some degree. So the five crowns of uh, salvation, uh, in their theology, they believe that special people are called to special things, and if they uh, lay their lives down, live a life of poverty, and so forth, then there will be a crown given. Now, let's start them off. Okay. Brethren. <laughs> okay, so when we think of crowns, because we're going to focus on the crown dynamic today. So when we think of crowns, we're just going to do a word association. What comes up when I say the word crown? What do you think? Yes. Royalty. Royalty. Great. What do we imagine Anna? it looks like? Yes? 24 elders. 24 elders. That's okay. We can stop. That's exactly what we were looking for. Thank you for your contribution. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> okay. Royalty and the 24 elders. So the 24 elders, for those who don't know, we see in Revelation. So we see the 24 elders in front of the throne, in the throne room of God, and they all have crowns. And we see that whenever worship starts in the heavenlies, that these 24 elders fall down before the throne. It says that they cast their crowns before the throne. Do you want to elaborate? Has anybody had a picture regarding that scene? No? no? You haven't it's actually It's quite dramatic. Imagined? I imagine them getting up, falling down, getting back up, sitting down, getting up, falling down, throwing down, getting the crown, sit back down, put on the crown, fall down, throw down the crown. It's tiring. Tiring job. There's this, there's this guy on the side. He's not important, so he's he not runs. mentioned. He just he has a little hammer. And he just keeps taking the dents out of the crowns. And then but you know go. like in, in Wimbledon with the tennis matches, they have the that, ball that boys? Uh, yeah. Like one of those also running, gathering the crowns. <laughs> do they leave the crowns or do they hold it in their hands while they're throwing it down? Well, how you do see, you throw it down without There's all these questions. It? I know. So. You could be holding it and throwing it. And throwing it. So let's do... <laughs> <talk. laughs> That's smashing it. <laughs> Now let's talk about what you see when you think about the crown being cast. What's in our minds? Do you see nothing? What do you what do you think when Literal Okay, what does the crown look like? What do you see when you look at the crown? Cuz I mean is it a like a garland or is it like a bulky thing? What do you guys Like for dramatic effect. <laughs> so not a tiara. That's something I wondered. Does girls imagine tiaras and boys these big? I don't know if I imagine. Okay, well the 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 elders, I think in my mind, were mostly men. So I can't so, imagine them wearing a tiara. They were with. Yeah, I just did. It doesn't work. <laughs> Okay, so. No, not going to work. 
Okay, so this is where we want to start off, because we want to look at, the, the question is, is there a reference in the Bible that there will be crowns given as rewards? That's the question. But the big question is, when in the whole sequence of events does this take place? Is there a second judgment? Does this happen after the white throne judgment? Does it happen before? Simultaneously, is it part of the white throne judgment? Because the, the the accepted general thinking in Christianity is that there's a rapture, then all the other bad people are left behind, the unbelievers. <laughs> the believers are rewarded with white robes and crowns, and then they come back with the Lord to judge the world. That's the idea. That's how most people fit that into the picture. It doesn't work, but they still get it right to believe it. Okay, so, crowns. So, who has any other picture of a crown in their head than that thing? (laughs) Where did the birthday thing come from? Or the Christmas. Oh, it's Christmas. Where did that come from? See? It's just woven into culture. Oh, with the bubble. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You see? That's why you never see her wearing it. It's a rumor. (laughs) She has a crown. (laughs) It's not for wearing. (laughs) Okay, so what does the queen's crown represent, though? So we know it's it's there. It's probably the most important. There's a crown and a scepter, and those two things, Mm -hmm. together with the throne itself, is the most important things in the entire United Kingdom. Yeah. There's nothing more important. Do you know why she has a crown and a scepter? Or uh, the the monarch, whether it's a king or a queen. So so let's think about what does it what does it represent? Why is it there? Authority. 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 So especially the United Kingdom, because since they are officially a Christian country or kingdom. Um, I guess uh, they believe that the huh? Are they? What? Officially? Yes. Officially. Yes. 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 That's why they have the monarch. So the monarch, the reason she has a crown and a scepter, the reason because the the reason the monarch has a crown and a scepter is because uh, by the church, the the monarch is anointed as the sovereign of the people. So, still coming from the Jewish heritage idea. So the monarch is the is also called the sovereign, and at the crowning, they are officially anointed as the sovereign over the people to be the link uh, between the people and, and God. God. Yes. And remember, she's the head of the Church of England, and remember that um, all the ceremonies linked to the authority of the crown are done in a, in a church cons- context. Yeah. Okay, so 
Let's move on from General there. Let's knowledge. firstly, we're just going to read through these scriptures that pertain to the crowns. Uh, can we read through them one okay. by one? And then we're going to take the first step in answering the question. Every time we have to find a, a que- an answer to a question biblically, every time we have to interpret something, there's the first rule, and that is the rule of first mention. So we're going to start with the process. This is a part of what we are doing with every teaching, uh, with everybody in discipling. Is we are remember what we do, we, what we did on Thursdays as well. Is we teaching the process, the the way of processing through the word, thinking, uh, following a process that is going to lead us to the right biblical interpretation of the Bible. So we're going to read through this, and then we're going to go. The rule of first mention, right? Keep that in mind. Okay. Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Okay. Go for it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest... When I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Okay, so imperishable crown. Let's just look at a very obvious contextual um, uh, point to, to, to emphasize here is that obviously this is a Greek reference. It is a Greek-Roman reference. So it is a reference to something that is coming out of the Roman culture, and we know that the Olympic Games comes from there, so they would compete, and the winner in the competition, in this case a race, uh, receives a sign of honor and victory. And uh, so here, it's not the kind of crown that the queen wears. Okay, So here, what was translated as crown, it would be a wreath, It was, in the beginning, it was just made from ivy or plants, and later on they had fashioned something out of gold that would look like an ivy, uh, or something like that, and then it would be worn around, it would surround and encircle the head. We all know what that looks, Caesar's little thing that surrounds the head. But didn't he have, like, it just came up there with the legs? That's right. So this is what would be translated crown here. right exactly so there was a it was a competition this was also rewarded uh, by the Roman Empire for any outstanding performance or achievement so civil servants um, and so forth anybody that contributed and what they wanted to acknowledge their achievement 
would be acknowledged by given one of these. So someone that would be in parliament or, or cabinet or, uh, or any uh, of any form of service, if they had received one of these, when they came to an assembly, they would wear it. And so it would be a sign of honor and authority and achievement. Right, okay. Carry on to the next one. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read a chunky piece. Well, it's not that chunky. We've read more. Okay. 3 verse 16. We're going to read all the way to chapter 4 verse 8. Hmm. You can go for it. Okay. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Yahushua HaMashiach, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Next, James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We'll just read one verse. 1 Peter chapter 5. From verse 1 to 4. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Messiah, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Okay, now we go to Revelation chapter 2. We'll just read verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Okay, then these are... 
added extras, but they fit in. So Revelation chapter 3. We're going to read, it's the sixth letter. Sixth letter. We're going to read the whole letter. Is that okay? Mm. Okay. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have said before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then the last two say similar things. So it's 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Yahushua HaMashiach that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. And then Philippians chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord beloved so those are all the scriptures then so just to lay the foundation now we can start linking the crowns so everybody understands what's happening it's clear it's straightforward right <laughs> plain and simple nothing to explain there you go so we start with crown most people reading these things will come up with some picture of what we traditionally now would see as a crown. Something with pointy stuff and uh, Most likely gold. precious stones on the ends, some red and blue stones all around. That's what I see, kind and of golden emeralds. thing, emeralds. And that's it, right? Okay. Now, to start to even look at what the crowns is. Because we're still going to have to sort out, is it a reward? How is the reward given? How is it won? Uh, does different people get different crowns? Because that's the doctrine. They say, well, there's a crown of life, a crown of glory, a crown of rejoicing, and these are crowns given to certain people for certain deeds and for certain things. The clip we saw, that they connected to your calling, what you were called to do in life. Okay, now let's see, crown. To figure out what the crown is, we've got to go to first mention in the Bible. 
Who, who wants to think where the first crown would be mentioned in the Bible? Just off the top of your hat. Head. <laughs> okay. Right, so what would we think? Where would the logical place be to look if you had to look for the first mention in the Bible? So she's going to know. <laughs> okay, kings. Yay. Okay, let's go read the kings. Okay, did, any, did anybody else think king? Anybody think anything else but king? Okay. Anybody think anything else but king? Let's go for it. Let's go for it. So, so, so who guessed the first king Saul? Who guessed that? Saul. Yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> 1 Samuel. Um, it's a long story. So I'm going to read some of it and then some of it we're going to skip over. But we want to look at the detail in the context. Okay, so we're going to start at chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. Okay, now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice, however you shall solemnly, solemnly forewarn them, and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So then Samuel, okay, I'm going to now just sum it up a bit. So Samuel goes back to the people, he says to them, well... If you do get a king over you, then this is what he will be like. Your sons and your daughters will become his slaves. He will take your fields and give it to his servants. Your sons will run in front of his chariots and be his army, etc., etc. So this is the way it's going to be. And then, verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite. A mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was no more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And then we know how the story goes. So on a day, Kish, Saul's father, his donkeys are lost. 
And then he says to his son, Saul, take a servant and you go look for the donkeys. So they go, they walk high and low, far and wide, they can't find the donkeys. And then eventually Saul says to the servant, listen, maybe we should call it a day, go home, because my father might stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about us. And then the servant says, okay, but wait a minute. In this city that we are quite close to, there is a man of God, a seer, a prophet, and uh, everything that he says does come to pass. So maybe we should go see him and then he will tell us the way we should take back home. And then Saul says, well, that's a good idea, but we don't have anything to give him. Like, so, yeah. and then the servant says, okay, but I have a quarter, one fourth of a shekel of silver that we can give to the man of God. And then Saul says, good idea, let's go. So then they walk to the city, some women come by with water pots and they say, where can we find a seer? They say, well, if you go into the city now, he's going up to the high place because they're going to offer a sacrifice and then have a feast and eat, but they have to wait for the prophet because he has to go and bless the sacrifice before they can eat. So, but if you go into the city now, then you will find him. So let's read chapter nine from verse 14. Uh, so they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where, the seer, where is the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago... Do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh and its upper, with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here it is, what was kept back. It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you, since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, But you stand here a while, that I may announce the word of, to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Then he tells him, when he's going to walk away from him, he tells him, like, three things are going to happen. 
First, um, he's going to come across some men by Rachel's tomb. He's going to tell him that the donkeys have been found, but now his father's worrying about him. Then they're going to keep walking, and then um, he will meet three men going up to Bethel, carrying goats and loaves of bread and a skin of wine, and then they will give them some of the bread. And then they're going to continue walking, and then they're going to meet some prophets coming down from the high place with instruments and prophesying. And then... Uh, let's read from verse 6 chapter 10 then the spirit of the lord will come upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man and let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands for god is with you you shall go down before me to gilgal and surely i will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings seven days you shall wait till i come to you and show you what you should do so it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. Um, so then they meet all the people and then Saul, when they meet the prophet, Saul does um, prophesy among them. Um, okay, and now we see the part where Saul is proclaimed king and we know what happens. So Samuel now calls all the people together, says, you wanted a king, so now... We're going to announce and choose the king. So then they draw, um, what do they call it? Um, it's like drawing lots, but it says, verse 20, And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Remember? And then he was hiding. Huh. And then it says, okay, so they find him, they bring him near, and then he's taller than all the other people. And Samuel said to all the people, verse 24, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. Okay. So now what happens is most people go home, Saul goes home, some people go with him. And then the Amorites, or the Ammonites, come to make war against Gibeah, or Gilead, some town in Gilead. They want to come and make war. So then the people of this city send word to the other Israelites saying they want to come make war. They are all weeping and lamenting because they're about to die. And their family, they of Israel is about to die and then Saul comes from working in the field and he says what happened what's happening they say no the Ammonites were going to attack the city it says the spirit of the Lord comes upon him his anger is aroused and then he rallies up the armies of Israel and they go and they make war and then they win and then it says um, da, 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 da. okay so chapter 11 uh, let's see Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Where, <clears throat> where was he crowned? Do you want to point out where he was crowned? No, but where's the moment when he was crowned? Oh, it just says, come, start to renew the kingdom. 
Don't forget. <laughs> Funny that the uh, caption says chapter 12 Samuel addresses at Saul's coronation. <clears throat> now we can go to David. Okay, well, okay, well, something that we might just point out and go like, okay, well, maybe there's an explanation for this. Because <clears throat> it does say that God, when he speaks to Samuel to say, this is the man, he doesn't actually say, you shall anoint him as king. It just says, you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So they're asking for a king. God says um, <clears throat> to Samuel, do what they ask of you. Heed them. And God does spectacular things for Saul, right? He acknowledges him, says he changes his heart, changes him, changes him into a new man, his spirit comes upon him, he prophesies the people, God organizes the whole thing. Uh, he says to Samuel, I will send you a man tomorrow. But the authority, God's authority, remains upon Samuel. He becomes, uh, Saul becomes the commander of the Lord's armies. Just keep this in mind, okay. So, no crown that we could find here. No so, this is, not, this is not the first mention of the crown. Right, okay. So, let's go to David, because David obviously is king. Okay, uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 1. Okay. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Okay, this is after Saul's death, just so everyone knows what's happening. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. Now, remember, Jerusalem has not been um, taken by the Israelites yet. And at this stage, there's already a bit, a little bit of a separation between Israel and Judah. So David becomes king of Judah first and then later of Israel. Okay, so and he said to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelites and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And then they said, okay, these are the men who buried Saul, and then David honors them. And that's him becoming king of Judah. Again, no crown. So let's see when he becomes king of Israel. Um, okay, chapter 5, to Samuel chapter 5. From verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. 
Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. How did he become king? Anointed, not crowned. Okay, so we still have the question on the table, where's the first mention of crown in the Bible? In context to the Israelites, the Hebrew people, because that's the context. Okay, now we're going to find... Where's the earlier mention? Do you know? Probably Aaron's. Very good. Okay, let's go to Exodus. Chapter 28. Verse 36. I'll explain it now. So this is the priestly garments. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban, and it shall be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be in his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Okay, so now we go, what, a plate of pure gold. What does this have to do with anything? Chapter 29, uh, verse 5. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, the ephod, and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. Then you shall put the turban on his head, and put the holy crown on the turban. And then you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. Interesting. Now let's go to Exodus chapter 39. Because this is, so where we just read is the instruction given for what they should make and how they should make it. And then later we see that they do make it and then implement everything that God said. 39 verse 30. Then they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold. And wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, Holiness to the Lord. And they tied it to a blue cord to fasten it above the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. So what would the inscription mean? What would it have looked like in the time it would have been separated unto Yahweh? Interesting. So the first time we see a crown, and again this is a word, translated crown, simply because it was a covering for the head. And it represented authority. But it's even more significant. Because it is made exactly the same. And in line with the coverings that is used in the temple, the overlay. So Aaron gets an overlay exactly like the... Ark of the Covenant. Yes. Aaron gets an overlay exactly like the Ark of the Covenant. 
So the gold that the Ark of the Covenant is overlaid in, and all the other items in the temple, Aaron becomes part of the temple. Separated to the Lord. All the items that were consecrated unto the Lord for the priestly service becomes holy, separated unto the Lord. And Aaron, as the high priest, becomes the highest figure and representative of authority because he's part of the temple. So the crown is not a fancy crown, it's simply a gold plate, a gold overlay with an inscription on it, holiness unto Yahweh, separated unto Yahweh. That's the crown, a gold plate. The first mention of crown in relation to God's people. Of course, everybody can now make the connection, the prophetic unfolding of the high priest and the crown. So who comes back with the crown on his head? The high priest. Now we can start to make connections. Okay. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Mm -hmm. He simply becomes part of the priestly tabernacle, of the temple of the house. So what did we say when we were looking at the fire that tests our works? It's only in relation to what is built into the temple. Okay. So this comes back to our priestly lives, our priestly roles. So the king in God's system of um, Authority are anointed, but not crowned. Our worldly thinking has it the other way around, isn't it? We think that the priest is anointed and the king is crowned. There's a, we're quickly going to comment on a mindset. We're not going to go deep into it. We can do this thoroughly in the, in the future. There's a idea out there, it's another, I wouldn't call it a doctrine, I don't know what to call it, it's just an idea, it's kind of an accepted teaching that has spread through the church world and it now has become the norm. And that's the idea, and many people teach this, implement it, uh, in some way try to live according to it, and so in the church world they, they, they tend to um, <coughs> divide <coughs> or categorize uh, people according to their um, personality, makeup, character, calling, uh, giftings, they want to divide them into three broad stroke groups, uh, priests, kings, and prophets. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a, an accepted idea. Um, the Synod of the Dutch Reformed Church accepted that about five or six years ago, <clears throat> and adopted. <clears throat> Not odd they did that, I don't know. But anyway, it's, it's actually in the charismatic world, it's also a thing. <laughs> And so people uh, want to categorize themselves into kingly roles, priestly roles, and prophetic roles. 
Uh, they they naturally created by God. They were created by God in a natural, uh, characteristic way, where they where they are more. Um, they, they fit themselves into one of these categories. Now the problem is <clears throat> that the teaching goes that the kingly role is the managerial, the authority role, where the king has the authority, and the priest is the service, it's more servitude, so the, the priest is the one that has the mercy heart, that uh, has pastoring people, they've actually got it all upside down. The king was supposed to pastor, shepherd the, the people. The priest is crowned, and the king is anointed. And shepherd. They have roles. Exactly. They have roles to fulfill. Now, if you noticed in um, reading the story about Saul's um, appointment by God, um, it says that very clearly, interesting, it says in those days the prophet were called the seer. So the prophet were the one that had the vision of what is supposed to happen, what was coming next. The king was appointed uh, uh, commander of God's armies to protect the people, to lead the people. The high priest was the highest figure of authority because he was part of the temple and the priesthood. So um, the whole idea of categorizing people into those, please, it's fatality. It is not wise to do that. We want to acknowledge that we will walk together in certain roles and fulfill certain um, uh, functions, but in wisdom, uh, wisdom, we want to all enter into some level of walking these out. Now, there's a doctrine out there that says every man in every house is the prophet and the king of his and the priest of his own house. Okay, please, please, please. This is dangerous. It's widely accepted out there. In every man's house, he's the king, he's the priest, and he's the prophet. The problem with that is that if the husband in the house, in the home, is the prophet, and he's hearing from God about everything, then the authority of the body, the house, uh, ceases to, to function. Okay? Do we see the problem with that? So there's coverings. Let's go to the covering. So the, the priest is given a head plate to be worn upon the turban. Okay. Now this, again, shows us God's authority structure. It's a head covering. So let's get to a very simple understanding of a crown. A crown is a head covering. So it can be a wreath, something that surrounds or encircles the head. Or it can be a plate that is worn upon the head with an inscription says, Holiness separated unto Yahweh. And the, then the oil is poured out upon this. Now, So just, um, yeah, we're going to read this now. Just as a side note to the king and prophet and priest thing, just keep in mind that according to the covenant, we are called as a nation of kings and priests, which means that not every person now becomes the high priest and the prophet, but to some extent, we all enter into 
the reality of building into the temple and serving. Okay. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is head coverings from verse 2. Okay. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Messiah, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Messiah is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if, if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord for as woman came out of man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Okay. <laughs> I wish Paul didn't go into the whole hair thing. This is about authority, right? Okay, so. But anyways, he did. It's about authority. So why is this important? He says God is the head of Messiah, Messiah the head of man, the man head of his wife. Okay, so it's about authority. Again, crowns, authority, head coverings. Just to say that, it doesn't say man the head of his wife. It says man the head of woman. Head of woman. Just okay. note. Good. All women. Now, we've taken little steps regarding this. Now let's tie some of these loose ends together. We looked at, we started off by looking at, we are given talents, so we're given of what belongs to Messiah according to our abilities. Okay, everybody went through the teaching, well done. Okay. So we're given by Messiah what is His, and He doesn't give everybody the same. He gives according to the abilities that they have. And now the story goes that a ruler is going to go away. He gives uh, talents or miners to his, his servants, and then they are to go and trade with them, and he will come back and balance the books. Now, this has everything to do with the question that we are dealing with, right? He's going to balance the books. It is said. He says so. What do we do with that? How do we interpret it? How, we, how do we respond to it? Because why, why we are addressing this question is very simple. How much are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? What is too little and what is too much? What is right and what is wrong? It's a big question. Okay, so we don't want to be uh, of a mindset that we're just going to do our best according to what I decide is my best, or I consider or feel 
is my best, or society or culture tells me it's my best, I'm going to do my best, and then we'll see how it goes. We don't want to subscribe to that. And yet, we also started off by looking at works and rest. So we know that works, or work-based faith, can be condemned by the Lord. We are commanded to enter into His rest, His finished work, and yet, it's very clear that we are supposed to do something. We're supposed to trade with the talents. Mm. And that He is going to settle the books. Mm. Am I right? There's dire consequences for the person, the servant that didn't go and trade with the one talent that he received. Mm. Dire consequences. Okay? Now, then we looked at the fact that we are uh, commanded or um, advised by the word, according to the apostles, to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, because that's where our heart will be. So we connected these two um, examples in the Bible of hard works. We are going to trade on this side with what he gave of his own, what belongs to him. Now the question is, what is it that he gives us that we're supposed to trade with? Okay. Now we use the trading here to store up for ourselves treasures there. We pose the question, when does it become treasure? Because if you've got 10, 10 rand buried in a chest somewhere, it can be treasure to you, but it's not considered treasure, generally speaking. Okay? So now. Then we looked at building on the foundations that the apostles laid. And we're supposed to build with precious stones. Any of you have precious stones with you? Okay, precious stones, right? Where are we going to get the precious stones that we're supposed to build with? Again, it's going to be what he gives of his own. So we have to, in some way now, receive from him precious stones to build with. Because what we uh, consider hay and wood and grass and all the other stuff is going to be burned up, that we can um, very easily find in our world to build with. Okay, so what does this have to do with the crowns? Let's go back to the story of the talents. Matthew 25. Okay, we're not going to read the whole story again. This is what happens. He comes back. The, the two people that did well, what does he say to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So here we find a connection between crowns. When you heard crown, what did you think? Authority, ruler, king. That's why when we said, where's the first mention of crown? We went, oh, it must be the king. Now he says, I will make you ruler over many things. Could this be connected to the rewards that we see as crowns? Let's go to the 24 elders again. They cast their crowns. At his feet. 
Now, what do you think elder, 24 elders? 24 elders would represent the highest form of, of authority. 24 elders in the Bible represents full authority. So the number 24 is also full authority. Number 24 represents full authority, eldership, full authority, 24 elders, and they have crowns. Okay, so they represent the 12 tribes of um, uh, Israel and the 12 apostles. Old Testament, New Testament. Complete authority of what? The Word. Old Testament, New Testament. What does the 12 apostles uh, represent? The Word. What is the authority? The Word. Okay. So, they cast their crowns. We now know that crown has nothing to do with the picture that we normally have. It's about rulership. So we have two forms of crowns in the Bible. Okay? We have the wreath that Paul refers to. That's something that surrounds the head, covers the head. And then we have the plate that is separated unto the Lord, anointing. It's a golden plate. It's part of the priesthood, and that covers the head. So, which one is it that the elders would cast? At his feet. <laughs> yeah, we'd, we'd rather choose the plate than the wreath, right? Okay. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Can you read it for us again, please? Okay, chapter 9, verse 24. We're going to this 1 Corinthians. <laughs> okay, 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Can you pause, please? Mm. They are temperate in all things. Can you write somewhere for us? Make a little list here. Temperate. Has anybody read this scripture and gone like, I'm not interested, that's not me? Any believer read this and go like, no, I don't want to run. Give the crown to someone else. I'm going to be humble. Anybody do that? No. Pardon? That is not humble. So if I said, no, Lord, I am just satisfied with the little I have, is that humility or pride? Now, a person read this and they go like, it says we should run as if uh, for a prize. I go like, I'm going to win. Is that pride or humility? humility? Humility. So I go, I'm going to be first. Is it pride or humility? In context to this scripture. It says run for the crown. So if I go like, it's me. <laughs> Hello, I'm here. <laughs> I made it. I made it. It's like, I'm first. Son, you have to run first. No, I want my crown now. I'll run later. I'll finish. Don't worry about it. Trust me. Anybody have that attitude? Like, first time I read it, I'm like, hey, they wrote about me in here. How's that? How did Paul know? The winner. That's me. 
Then I see, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Wait. That doesn't sound like the fun part at all. I liked, the, I liked the idea of the crown. Okay, and then he had to, again, come and ruin the whole thing with this discipline thing. <laughs> Sounds order, like hard, hard work, mm. right? Okay. Now, temperate in all things. Now, let's look at the context. If we go up a little bit, he says... Um, he speaks about if we have, uh, verse 11, if we've sown spiritual things. Um, then he goes, uh, verse 14, just context. Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Okay, then he goes, uh, verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. Lord, I'm so sorry I complained about the discipline thing. I'm willing. It's, um, I just misunderstood for a moment there. So all of a sudden now I'm going like, okay, wait, the reward is going to do if you don't do it begrudgingly, but willingly. So no complaining, just do it. And... Um, then he goes, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Messiah without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Then he says, for though I am free from all men, and he carries on, he becomes a Jew to it for the Jews, um, weak as the weak, strong as the strong. Okay, what is he saying? He's talking about his calling, the gospel, and his witness, and his testimony. So now, out of that background, we get to the place where he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. says, be tempered in all things. Because you see, the way the Greeks run is for a perishable crown. One that fades away. This is an unfading, unperishable crown that we run for, he says. And they formulated a doctrine surrounding all of this. says there's an imperishable crown. It's one of the five crowns. Or they call it an everlasting crown. An everlasting crown. crown. And then they go, it's for those who preach the gospel. Okay. Remember what works are tested by fire. That which we build into the house of God, the body of God, the new Jerusalem. So this, again, comes back to the word, preaching the gospel. Now, how do we preach the gospel? Now, Paul preached the gospel in what way? How did Paul preach the gospel? With his entire life. When he says preaching the gospel, he's not just talking about preaching on Sundays. Because I would also just like say, because I preach like the preacher, and that means also in a church environment. Exactly. <laughs> so you see what they've done with this is now the doctrine in the, in the Catholic idea was that now that bold spot, 
was the sign that they have been charged with the office or the authority of preaching the gospel. And that is the, 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 the foreshadowing of the crown. So the responsibility is there, but the reward will be had by them. So now, let's quickly see, how did Paul preach the gospel with his life? Because we know when he says that he's finished the race, it says that he's been poured out as a drink offering. Okay. So again, his life is about the interaction with the New Jerusalem, the temple. Because that is all that will remain. All else will be burned up. So now, which works will be burned up? That's the question that uh, people were asking on Thursday. Remember we said we would answer this. And my normal works, my everyday stuff, will it be burned up or not? Anything that belongs to this world isn't burned up because the Lord decides, well, that was ugly, I'm going to burn it up. This world is passing away. So, anything that is not related to that which is everlasting will pass away with that which passes away. Yes, very. So what are we considering? Where is the focus? Where is the spotlight shining on? Only that which pertains to the everlasting. Now the question remains, is God going to now sit and judge all our works? Because that's the doctrine. Everything is going to be weighed. Everything you said and done. No? That which pertains to the everlasting. Everything else will, by nature, pass away with that which passes away. So whether it was good or bad, it will pass away if it is not in relation to that which is everlasting. Now, this crown, this prize, this wreath, that surrounds the head, has to do with him preaching the gospel, his fellowship, he's interacting with the world around him, weak with the weak, strong with the strong, uh, as a Jew to the Jews. Mm-hmm. His reward is so that he may pre- preach the gospel free of charge. That's his reward. And he says he does it without complaining and willingly. That's part of what is important. And it entails being temperate and disciplined in all things. Are we starting to see a picture emerge? Okay. Picture emerging. Discipline and temperate. His interactions with everybody around him is focused on one thing. His reward is if he can in any way preach the gospel free of charge. How does he preach the gospel? With his witness. And he's speaking, he's doing, he's not speaking, when he's not doing, when he's not saying anything, when he's not responding, when he's walking away, and when he's coming. When he's accepting and rejecting. When he's agreeing or disagreeing, all of that. And he's preaching the gospel. What's the gospel? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, so... Can we look at the... We're just going to go right to that wonderful, beautiful picture of the Greek word oh. for crown. Please. Okay. So we did some... Yes. Can say something? The word discipline is so close in this Bible. 
Yes. Exactly. It comes from the same word. It comes from the same word. Okay, so we did some research looking for where crown comes from, where the idea and the concept and the truth comes from, first mentioned, da 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 da. And so then we found that the Greek word for crown, whichever crown, the Greek word for crown is Stephanos. S, I'll write it down. Like that. Anybody's like that. <laughs> Don't know where to start. Anybody can feel their heart moving right now. <laughs> okay. So, and then it's connected with, and we'll show you the connection now. So, Stephanos, the word for crown. Do you want to just read it? Hmm. Okay. Uh, so, seven are chosen in Acts chapter 6 because the need arises for the apostles to devote themselves to the reading of the scriptures and to prayer. The attention that is needed to be given to the congregation, to the believers, um, this responsibility is assigned to seven deacons that are appointed. The one that is named first in this list of deacons is called Stephen. His original name was? Stephen. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then they named the others. The word of God spread, verse 7, and the number of the disciples multiplied. The word of God spread. Their authority is given and laid upon them. But now, this Stephen, full of faith, verse 8, and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. They're from other areas. And they start to dispute with him. He responds to their accusations. They, they cheat, they pay people to bring a false witness. And um, he runs them through the entire history of God's working and testimony with the Israelites until they cut to the heart. Verse 54. And Chapter then, seven. verse 54... When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Yahushua, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him. And we all know, now they drag him outside, and they start to stone him. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Yahushua, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Only God 
only sovereign Yahweh that is absolutely in control of everything could give us a picture of this race, running the race and receiving the crown in a dramatic way like this. The first martyr of the Messiah to die for the faith. His name means crown. And we'll tell you why we're making this connection. So the, the second letter to the seven churches uh, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful until death. Okay. So, just the obvious connection. So, we see Stephen, the first martyr, being faithful until death. The moment of his death, when he is dying, he says, Lord, do not charge them with the sin. And his name means crown, which is the reward. See something? Okay. Now let us, next week we're going to start looking at the timeline of uh, the judgment seat the return of the Lord. We are going to finally look at how all of this fits together so that we can figure out to what degree will our lives be judged, what will be judged, what will be burned up and what will remain, and uh, how these crowns fit together. Now let's go. So Stephen... comes a picture. His name means crown. He lays down his life. He becomes the first seed sown. And um, much of the explanation of the reward lies in what happens with him. But note the standard that is set by the Lord by putting Stephen into place right in the beginning, as the standard for earning the crown. Now, let us go to chapter 3 in Revelation, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia wrote, These things says he who is holy, who he who is true. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So, in the introduction of the Lord, every time in every letter, is going to give us an insight into where the emphasis is going to be placed in part of his character, 
his characteristics, his authority, his working. And then we, that will help us understand the letter. Now let's go to verse... Let's go to verse 11 first. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. So here we see a warning, and we have a little bit of a piece of information that shows us that the crown can be taken, can be lost. He says, let no one take your crown. No one take your crown. Okay. There are certain rewards here that will become very important in relation to the crown. Then he says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So, quite a mouthful. The rewards are quite extensive. So here, he says to them, certain things will be given and done, but he says they already have a crown. He says, let no one take your crown. Interesting. They already have a crown, right? Why is that? Do you want to answer that question? Where did they get the crown? The second overcoming. Read that, please. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. See, now there will be persecution. Someone and something will come against those who do what? Do what? Why would they come against us? Or them? These things, this is the second letter, these things says the first and the last, he was he who was dead and came to life. Okay. The resurrection. What is faith? We understand the whole truth of faith being based on one thing. God reveals to a person the new Jerusalem, which is eternal life, our homeland, us as his people. And the reason that is faith is because we have to now believe that there is a resurrection and an eternal life, and that becomes the substance of faith. Now, the substance of faith is him revealing to us there is a resurrection, so death is not the end. And because of the work of, finished work of Messiah, sin is forgiven and eternal life becomes available to us. And because of the forgiveness and the washing of sin, we will be raised up into life, eternal life. Everybody is raised up for judgment, but some are dead and some are alive in Messiah and some are raised to eternal life and some to the second death. Right. Now, he starts off with first and the last he who was dead and came alive. So he's referring us back to the substance of faith. Resurrection. It is the major theme of faith from Abel all the way through the Bible. Now, he says this 
in uh, chapter 2, verse 9. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Okay, so we believe that the rewards in the ten letters in Revelation, seven letters, uh, seven letters sorry, <laughs> we believe that the, the, the rewards are rewards to be received in this life, it is the overcoming in this life, and as we go from reward to reward, this becomes a repeat, return, do again, witness and testimony mm. of God's perfect and finished work in Messiah. Okay, right. Now, first letter we eat, we're given from the free fruit of the tree of life that is in the midst of the garden by the Lord Himself to eat. Second uh, letter, He just goes to in the face of death. When you are persecuted, locked up, tested, rejected, <coughs> reviled. With I'm other words, murdered. your second overcoming is when you lay down your life. You lay down your life. As if dead already. And then we receive the crown of life. The crown of life is the second reward in the process. Early in the process. But now, now we get now we get to this letter in chapter three, and he says, "Hold on to your crown, look after your crown, be careful, be diligent." So Paul says, "We run." As if for a crown. Second overcoming, we receive the crown of life. Here, at this stage in our growth and our discipling, he says, hold on to your crown. You would think that after we, we were faced with death, prison, after a moment where a believer resisted even until death, that um, such a believer would be no longer be in any danger. He says, hold on to your crown. Then he says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. We're back at the house, people. Okay. So that which will be tested by fire is that which we build into the temple. Okay. Now, he says, he will make such a person a, a pillar in the temple. Pillar in the temple. Let's go back to the talents. The person with the five talents went and he doubled it. The Lord says to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in little. I will make you a ruler? Okay. So we start off with a little, and there's an increase. The overcoming processes in the Bible is little, increase, increase, increase. Now we've come to a place where it says, I will make you a pillar in the house. So in the beginning of our walk, 
we get to grow and to seek the Lord, to serve the Lord in any way that we can, the way that Paul said. He becomes all things to all men. He has the privilege of preaching. It's not, it's not a burden to him preaching the gospel in any way that he can. And his reward is to, pre, to preach it free of charge. And then, in the process, we might receive from the Lord a precious stone to build into the temple, to add to the building. So we'll probably build with wooden hay over and over, see it burned up, until eventually, out of faithfulness, steadfastness, discipline, temperance, we receive one precious stone to build into the temple. So now we are adding to the building. We're becoming part of the process of the temple of the Lord being restored and built. Okay. But there's a point in which, at which we ourselves are built by Him as pillars into that house. These rewards... These rewards are going to be rewards for this life on this side, according to eternity. But there's even more. It says he will go out no more. Sounds familiar? Moses got to know the Lord, but Moses had to serve God's people. Moses had to lead them, serve them, Moses writes about himself, the most humble man that ever lived on the face of the earth. He was the only one filled with the Spirit for a very long time. And what he did with his life is what Paul did with his life. He preached the gospel. And he served God's people until he finally said, I no longer can go out. Now there's more. He says, I will write on him the name of my God. Yahweh's name will be written upon such a person. You might say, well, there's a story in the book of Revelation where everybody's marked by the name of the Lord. So general believers think in general world out there, everybody, they just come and write his name on you if you're a believer. Yeah, it says that, and a process of overcoming is one of the rewards. He will write the name of Yahweh on you. He will write his own name on you. His very identity will be connected to that person. And that person will be a pillar in this house, in this building. Is it not uh, something like when he inserts his own name into that of Abraham? Exactly that. So did Abraham become a pillar in the house of the Lord? See, we are just part of that story. Um, this is why we overcome. Now, let's be clear. These are rewards for overcoming. For overcoming. When is the burning going to take place? It has to be here because it's while we are building into the building that everything is tested with fire. It cannot possibly be 
that after we die and we are judged there, that he's going to test everything with fire. Okay? We'll look at that next week. This is being built in here. What is outstanding about Stephen in those moments is self-control. Temperate in all things. So how did Paul say he would um, run and receive the crown? By being temperate in all things, disciplined. Stephen is tested even until death, and what is his response? He fixes his eyes on the Lord, and the Lord makes sure that he's not looking at nothing. So he chooses to look up, look at the right place. He chooses to focus where he's supposed to, and the Lord answers, he responds. He doesn't speak to Stephen, he doesn't say, Stephen, be strong. Stephen, I love you. Stephen chooses to look, and the Lord allows him to see what he needs to see. The Lord standing at the right hand of glory. And Stephen's response is, I choose to hand my spirit over to you, Father, receive my spirit. And then he says, but before I go, I'm going to intercede for you to forgive them. Do not charge them with this thing. Now, in the midst of pain, he has every right to feel sorry for himself, every right to be angry, to be offended. He has every right to judge. He has every right to question God. Lord, why are you not saving me out of this? <clears throat> but Stephen understands that this is not the moment to lose his crown. So in the last moments of his life, with his last breath, he chooses to hold on to that crown. He already received the crown when he started out in this process. So a crown is that which covers the head and surrounds the head. So the wreath, why did they use the wreath? Something that surrounds, brings us right back to the helmet of salvation. What's the helmet of salvation? So they almost had it right when they called these five crowns the crowns of salvation. Almost got it. They just missed the fact that that plate with the words inscribed on it, holy unto the Lord, separated unto Yahweh, that is the helmet of salvation. That is the crown of salvation. I would just like to insert here that the first mention of reward in the Bible is Genesis 15 when God appears to Abraham for the covenant cutting and he says to Abraham do not be afraid I am your shield your exceedingly great reward 
Mm. Now, we quickly going to get to the main point of this teaching. We look at here, it's got everything to do with authority. That which covers the head, holy and separated unto the Lord. Helmet of salvation refers back to that head covering. Separated unto the Lord. And the crowns we're looking at is simply the renewing of the mind. That which encircles the head and covers the head. <coughs> but it's not just renewing the mind. Because the crown does represent authority, reigning and ruling. This is the process of overcoming. As we overcome, we will grow in authority. We will grow in influence. Hmm. Interesting, he starts this letter, verse 7, by introducing himself, he says, He who is holy, separated. He who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So now we're back at the cycle that we've been following since we returned. What did we say the keys were? You can remember. What's the keys that the Lord says He gives and whatever we unlock, opens up in this world, will be released or unlocked in heaven? Whatever we shut, bind, lock or close, in this world will be closed in heaven. What did we say the keys were? Pardon? The word, the knowledge of the plan, the basic truth of the gospel, the word. So how do we unlock, how do we release in this world? We speak the truth according to God's plan, His will. We speak the word of God. Speak the word of God to unlock. Now, this is um, what could really benefit many. In this world, if we're walking around with the key of the Word of God, it's how we respond to the Word of God, not just how we speak the Word of God. How we react to the Word of God, how we obey the Word of God, how we submit to the Word of God. And that's how we unlock certain things in our lives. Or we lock and close, close away things that we wanted to be unlocked in our lives. So, if I respond in disagreement with the Word of God, what, what do I do? I lock something away that will be locked away in heaven. So we have to now understand, he is not just introducing himself randomly here as the one that holds the keys. Because he's now going to speak about establishing authority in the house. So we overcome, and when we have the crown of life, 
we are going to also increase in authority. So now he's connecting the whole thing, the key of David. Now I want to just bring this back to something very practical. Okay? So that which covers the head has to be in relation to separated unto the Lord. Renewing the mind is what? The Word of God. All our thoughts, all our opinions, all our emotions, everything. What is the keys? The Word of God. Can you read for us, please? Um, Proverbs. Just, can we read through that? Now, now, this is not a rebuke. This is how we practically get a handle on these things. Because we're still not answering the question, is there a judgment on our deeds? When is the crown given? How is crowns given? Next week we're going to look at the crowns, the crown of glory, crown of righteousness, the crown of life. We are opening up. We are connecting everything with renewing the mind. Renewing the mind brings authority because it's all about how we contribute to the building of the house. So what is life about? So when years ago I watched an interview with the Dalai Lama and they posed him the question, what is the mystery of the purpose of life? And he said, well, the purpose of life is to never do harm to anyone. To live to benefit those around you. And if you cannot benefit them, then at least refrain from doing them harm. Everybody thought it was the best, wise answer ever. The fact is, the purpose of life is, for us, is building the house. Everything in our lives should be repositioned to contributing in some way. So getting, uh, receiving, obtaining that precious stone to build in, that which is going to be everlasting. Next week we'll delve into that more, so to speak. Delve into the... Okay. Anyways, and then... Um, but for now, we just want to have a look at practically when it comes to my life, me. Why, why do we see good believers seeing so many negative effects in their lives? Why we're doing this is very simple. Because we discussed about the fire that is always burning, that is always going to test every single word spoken in relation to the body, every time we fellowship, every time we pray together, every time we worship together, every time we are together. It's going to test that. And we can't suffer loss. <clears throat> but I'm concerned <clears throat> that this could have led to a misunderstanding, a misconception, that when things go wrong in my day, in my life, when things don't work out for me, that was God burning stuff. We don't want that mentality. It's easy to make that connection. Now people are going, oh, things went wrong, so it's the Lord burning my stuff up. No, that's okay. Again, what we said in the beginning, 
the fire only pertains to that which is being built into the house, into the temple. Now, the person prayed and sought the Lord with diligence in trying to get that new contract, and then they don't get the contract, and they go like, well, the Lord burned all my effort up. Okay, now please, we don't want to misunderstand this. It sounds like people wouldn't do this. Anybody could become vulnerable to thinking this. There's another dynamic that we have to consider in life. So when it comes to our interaction with the body, that which is eternal, the new Jerusalem, so anything that has to do with what is going to be eternal there, and we know that is who is eternal, not what. Mm. So every son and daughter of God that we interact with, that is going to be tested. But there's a whole portion of our lives that has nothing to do with the temple. Okay? Even the priest doesn't live in the temple. He goes home at some stage. Right? Believe it or not. And so I'm not quite sure if um, when he's home, his family treats him like the priest. I don't know. Doubted. Don't know. You see, it's like. They never disobey him. Oh, you're the priest. We'll do what you say. Now, I'm pretty sure at home he's just a guy <laughs> with the same kind of things. Now, there's another dynamic that we have to consider because otherwise we're going to check everything, check everything to see if it's being burnt. We don't want to do that. We don't want to. That is what that other doctrine does because mm. the world thinks God is going to test everything we do, all our deeds. And that would be disastrous, okay? Because then nothing would stand. But this is where we want to go. You can just start us off and read through those. Okay, I'll read it just chronologically. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16. When pride comes, comes shame. Okay, so, when we're facing in our day, in our life, a situation that brings us shame, what caused it? Can we please remember, next time we're wondering why I'm feeling embarrassed? When I'm angry at the people around me because they're just not respecting me the way they should. What caused it? Okay. What brings wisdom? What, can you just re remind the rest? What brings wisdom? With the humble is wisdom. With the humble is wisdom. Okay, so see a very clear dynamic. Okay. What is humility? We have to find this before. Obedience. Obedience to the Lord. So we're right back where we started off. Okay. Okay. Proverbs chapter 16, from verse 17 to 19. 19. Okay. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who keeps his way preserves his soul. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly, than to divide the spoil with the proud. Uh, 
just the main thing again. Okay. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Okay, so now we see destruction. It might look the same as the fire that comes to burn our works. But this time, it's not the same thing, is it? It's not the Lord burning it up. But it could, in relation to our works being built into the body that is burned up, we could make the connection. When we're doing anything out of pride. It's like walking in a field and hitting the landmine. Exactly. I see what you're saying. This is okay. So this is a dynamic that is taught by the word as definite. So okay, if we one feel like they're fallen or they keep falling, people say to me, "Why on me? I keep stumbling. What's causing it?" Is it sin or disobedience or pride? Pride. The Bible says pride. Okay. Proverbs 17, verse 19. He who loves transgression loves strife, and he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. So you see, this thing works like this. Inevitably, some of us will start acting in pride. This cause embarrassment, shame, a fall, destruction. And then what do we do? Then we want to put up high gates. You don't understand me. That's why you're treating me so badly. You don't know that I know better than you. <laughs> You don't understand that if you just took the time to listen to everything I said and have to offer, then you would see that you are mistreating me for no reason, so I'm going to shut you out. What happens with the high gates? And he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. Can we see how practically this is so true? Mm-hmm. In the workplace, every facet of life, all relationships. Yeah? Can I ask a question? Yes. Can you connect this with Job's story? Mm. I see where you're going with this. Yes. Same dynamic. Same dynamic. Okay, Proverbs 18, verse 12. <clears throat> before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. Okay, so what, how do we guard against... How do, how, how do we start to undo all the negative cycles in our lives? It's pretty simple. Learn how to first look for humility and wisdom and identify when pride and strife starts to rise up in us. And so we can avoid the falling and the embarrassment and the shame and the destruction. 
And when we find ourselves already in that position of shame and destruction, don't start putting up high walls and make it worse. Okay. Proverbs 29, verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So New Testament version of this is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you in due time when the moment is right. He will. It says God resists the proud but draws near to the humble. Okay, when we are already in trouble this is not the time to respond pridefully to the Lord. It's never a time to respond pridefully to the Lord. <laughs> good point. Good point. It's never a good time for that. Stephen becomes the example of how to respond. It's not very complicated. He still dies, but he dies holding on to the crown of life, mm -hmm. and he becomes a pillar in the house, a deacon, becomes a pillar in the Lord's house, never to go out. The same testimony and witness that we see out of the humble, the short story of Abel, mm. all according to resurrection. The keys are connected to the Word. The crowns are connected to the Word. All the Gospel, preach the Gospel with our lives. And it takes temperance and self-control and discipline. And the moments when we respond not with temperance or discipline, those are the moments that will be burnt up. So this is a very interesting circle that it's forming, isn't it? So we back at everything we think, how we think, in line with what we think, where our attention and our eyes are. We're just back there, it's renewing the mind. So the key would be to start identifying the race, mm -hmm. the way it should be run, So, we started off saying, everybody reads that and go like, I want to run, I want to win. Okay, that's not pride, it's humility. Okay, but pride would be the moment when I'm going like, wow, it's too difficult, you're not helping me, I'm not good enough. That's pride. That's strife. So, we're back at works versus enter into the rest.
we back it. Um, store up for yourself treasure in heaven because that's where your heart will be. Everything points simply points away from yourself. All of this, all the time. All of this, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> So, there is this danger in the way that we teach salvation, grace, uh, predestination, that we can think, well, I've been baptized, everything is done, um, the Lord is just going to, yeah, just has to do, do everything for me. Okay, Saul sets out to look for donkeys. Hmm? Somehow his servant comes up with this, Wonderful idea. Well, there's a man in the city nearby. Uh, what a coincidence. Um, and you know, he just, everything he says comes true, and he knows exactly he's the seer. Let's go see him. God says to Samuel, Tomorrow I will send, I will bring a man to you. We have to understand that. When it comes to our lives, He knows how to guide us in His will. He knows how to do that. So it, God didn't tell Saul, go look for donkeys so that I can take you to Samuel. <laughs> no, the, servant, the servant came up with the idea. God tells Samuel exactly what he wants. Then, listen carefully, he anoints Saul after through the, what they call the dices. How did they choose Saul? The lots. The, the, the casting the lots. Oh, okay, casting the lots. The whole process, I mean, the whole lots are controlled by God so that they are sure that this is the man. God told Samuel, then he makes sure that even the people will see that it's him. Then, God gives him a new heart, he makes him a new man, a different man, puts his spirit upon him, and the saying became, just because Saul prophesied, prophecy is who God is, prophesying, saying, declaring who God is, and the saying became, is Saul now among the seers? Apparently not. He didn't stay on the road. So this is why we have to make sure that in relation to works and rest, yes, there's the perfect will of God. Yes, there's predestination. Yes, we have been baptized, we died and are resurrected. But, he made Saul a new man, gave him a new heart, put his spirit upon him, and Saul still left the road. And he lost the authority He's been given the position of acceptance. He's been given. He lost the spirit of God. Now we're not preaching that the spirit will leave you. We're saying there's a balance somewhere in between. That's why we're looking at the rewards teaching. Somewhere there's a road for us to walk. There's faithfulness. There's overcoming. Mm. So next week we'll finally answer all the questions regarding when and how. But what we were trying to establish is there is crowns and we have to run in a certain way. Now, 
if you're going to run the race, it's probably expected of somebody to run the race on the road and the course or I'm going to run the comments. The I'm route. just going to go the short way around and you're like, yeah, gonna, I won. I'm just going to choose my own route. <laughs> yeah. I don't like the road you guys are running. I'm just going to run my own, but I'm still going to run and see what happens. Okay, there's one road. One road. You've got to all have to run on the route that God has put for us to run the race. So just running is <laughs> not going to be good enough. That's what brings us back to this pride thing. I, I see the danger in everybody, all of us. Sometimes we want to run. We just don't want to run the way God instructed us to run. We don't want to run the route. We want to do it our way. I'm running, but I'm going to decide. Remember, like our whole ministry is based on faith. Which is seeing the road, seeing where you're supposed to go. So we don't want to just run. It's very specific. We run towards something. Now... We have all, every, each and every one of us has felt what it feels like when we are enticed by our pride to start doing it our way. We all know what the results are. And... Um, <laughs> But Johanna said such a wonderful illustration this week. Uh, it looked like there was some discipline and some re rebuke coming into his life. He had a few moments where it was really unpleasant. And then, because he responded in the right way in humility and obedience and wisdom, immediately the Lord started re rewarding him. There was immediate reward. He was given a precious stone to build into the building. So, what a wonderful lesson you had this week. He had every reason to sulk, to be angry, to feel sorry for himself. <laughs> but when, when, I, when I, I, I saw him after everything and I said, are oh, you right? He said, yeah, I, I knew I could be angry and I could sulk and feel sorry for myself, but then I thought, just repent. And overcome. Immediate, immediate rewards. And it could have, if he continued sulking, it could have had really terrible consequences. But he overcame. And so, please, let's just put it out there for those that are going to listen to this, wherever they are. Pride comes before a fall. Mm -hmm. So if you find yourself lying on the ground... Don't blame the people around you. <laughs> Who pushed me? <laughs> that's what we do. We're lying in the mud looking up at someone standing there going, like, I'm going to be angry at you for laughing at me. It's like, that's what people do. They fall, someone else goes like, hee hee, and they're angry at them for laughing. We don't go hee hee with a body. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you see someone walking into a closed glass door. 
Yes, but you first want to laugh and then go over and say, I'm sorry, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, that's the response, right? Okay. Only in this world. <clears throat> so, so let's just take that piece of advice, okay? The first reaction when things terribly goes wrong and we get hurt, we feel shamed, we feel like we failed and we feel like we stumbled is immediately stop and go, where was the pride? Where was the pride? And what was Stephen's response? We are holding those keys for others, but we're also holding the keys for our own lives. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to respond to the Word of God in unbelief, doubt, fear, worry, we did worry, then I'm the one locking the door. I lock it here, it's locked there. Mm-hmm. Now, what we do is we pray, Lord, Help me. He's kind of like, I, d- I have provided the hope. You have to unlock it with the word. So, he's not going to provide. He has provided. He's not going to determine. He has determined. He's not going to communicate to you. He has communicated to you. We have to respond with the word. Those are the keys. The word. So I might be quoting scriptures and then turn around in my heart, respond with despondency, doubt, and all the quoted words will do nothing because it's what's in here that will lock, unlock, or mm-hmm. close. Mm-hmm. I hope that helps everybody. It's very practical. We respond in faith according to covenant and the finished work. And... Uh, Results will be there. So, you might say, well, you know, you should feel sorry for me when I have doubt. No, doubt is pride. You should feel sorry for me when I'm just, I don't, just don't have the faith for this. Well, that's your own fault. Maybe there is no road here. That's why you can't see it. <laughs> And uh, sometimes we want to say, well, you don't know how hard it is. Oh, no. You don't know how difficult it is. You don't know how difficult my life is. No, it's not for me to know how difficult your life is. Your life. Mm-hmm. You're responsible. So this is what we're going to close off with. Let's remind each other. Your faith, your responsibility. Your relationship with God, your responsibility. Okay? Your spiritual health is your responsibility. Your emotional health is your responsibility. Your mental health is your responsibility. Yours. If you don't look after it, you are going to suffer the consequences. No one else. Speak negatively and you will suffer the consequences. Think negatively and you will suffer the consequences. Walk in pride for five minutes, you will suffer the consequences. Okay, this is just something I felt that if we are going to talk about rewards and Mm. losing rewards, suffering loss, and gaining in the kingdom of God, we have to remind each other, if things are tough, 
it's probably you. If you're unhappy, it was probably you that caused it. Okay? That's it. Easy as that. I'm not saying that shepherding, the shepherds won't help. There will be people to bind up, encourage. But that's secondary. Secondary. Zavia, is that fair enough, do you think? Okay, so anybody have a depressed day this week? It's your fault. You might say, well, circumstances was really tough. It's what the Bible says will happen. So we'll look at the rest of this next week and then we'll get to the final revelation of the crowns. Uh, the judgment and the timeline.